the direct lending market continued its almost meteoric rise in 2023, becoming, by some estimates, a $1.5 trillion market and increasingly a core allocation for institutional investors. Can this impressive growth continue? Or will higher rates and increased competition mean more defaults and lower spreads are on the horizon? Welcome to the Bearings 2024 Direct Lending Outlook, where our experts across the US, Europe, and Asia Pacific will weigh in on the prospects for the asset class in the year ahead. This episode is part of our 2024 Outlook series, which in addition to this episode includes conversations on public fixed income and global real estate. You can follow along on our streaming income podcast feed, our YouTube channel, or by visiting bearings.com, where we are posting audio, video, and written versions of these conversations. With that, here is Bearings' Natasha Sahi to kick off the discussion. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, so uh, great to host so many of you today for this discussion. Uh, my name is Natasha Sahi. I'm part of the private finance group here at Bearings, and I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues today for, for this discussion. As you know, the uh, theme of our 2024 sessions is really coming into focus as we sit today amidst a backdrop of heightened risks, geopolitical, macro, inflationary. I think the, the outlook for 2024 can Sometimes feel quite blurred. And what we wanted to do today with our direct lending uh, team is to really focus on the outlook for 2024 and dive into some of the issues that we're all uh, that we're all worried and, and concerned about and, and bring them into focus for you. So delighted to have you uh, have you join us today. And uh, without further ado, maybe I'll pass it over to my colleagues to to give their introductions and uh, to get us started. Adam, why don't you uh, kick us off? Thank you, and thanks for joining us today. Um, my name is Adam Wheeler. I, I co-head our platform here at, at Bearings, so our private finance platform. So for my sins, I, I'm on our US, European, and Asia PAC investment committee. So hopefully, I can give you some perspective on what we uh, on what we do in our platform today. Thank you, and Justin. Hey, thanks, Natasha. Um, so my name is Justin Hooley. Um, I've been at Bearings two years, and I I'm an MD in the uh, Sydney private finance team, and I run the uh, effectively APAC investments from, from there. And Tyler? My name's Tyler Gately. Uh, I'm a managing director in the private finance group as well. I lead our client portfolio management efforts. Thank you all. Uh, maybe a lighthearted question to kick us off and uh, stimulate some discussion. For our audience, what is the, the best book or podcast you have uh, read or listened to this year and and why uh, I can see you're all itching to answer this question so Tyler why don't you why don't you kick us off I think we'll, we'll probably talk a lot about headwinds and concerns so I'll keep it lighthearted. not going to comment on the quality of, of the music but I'll say uh, Taylor Swift biography uh, <laughs> reading with my my two little girls so. cool some, some some surprises there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Justin, what about you? Uh, so Natasha, following following the theme, and I think it's just coincidental, <laughs> but um, I read a book called Stolen Focus, which is um, by a guy called Johan Hari, and it's all about how we all get distracted these days with having six or seven devices that are all buzzing or jumping around on the table or distracting us from trying to you know get on with concentrating on a task for you know a period of time. So. 
Yeah, you love these questions. I had a sensible answer and then a, and then a truthful answer. I think the sensible answer is, you know, the Australian newspaper actually has a really good podcast where it does some investigative reporting that goes over several weeks and there's been a bunch of stuff on there that's been good. But the real answer is I just read too many magazines online and look into that too much as these guys probably know. So yes, that's, the that's, that's, where, that's where the knowledge comes from. Understood. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing. And uh, if we have any uh, audience members that have uh, questions on Taylor Swift or wine or uh, staying focused, we know where to, we know where to go. <laughs> so maybe uh, taking a step back, if we could set the scene and just talk about the overall backdrop for private credit markets today. We get a lot of questions from our investor base around the challenges of investing in a high interest rate environment, the inflationary backdrop, geopolitical risk, all of those sorts of headwinds. Tyler, maybe you could kick us off and just set the scene a little bit. How is the asset class uh, more generally positioned in this environment? I think you know, some of the nuances to the asset class that I think we, we oftentimes take for granted are is the direct nature of the loans that, that we're entering into. We have you know, continuous dialogue with the management teams. Uh, we have great access to information and have the ability to get out in front of situations far more easily than, than our liquid market you know, counterparts. Beyond that, you know, also structurally, when you think about the vast majority of the transactions in our market are covenanted deals, that gives us another lever to, to pull to get out in front of potential issues. But then finally, I think one thing to keep in mind is private credit market, generally speaking, avoids a lot of the uh, more acute underperforming industries. So, you know, we generally are not investing in, you know, commodity spaces. Right? And those tend to be the industries and the sectors that lead underperformance in down cycles and, and obviously outperformance in, in up cycles. But net, that dynamic limits the volatility in the space. And I think because of that, we'll generally be okay. That's not to say we're going to be immune. Yeah, I think a couple of those points are worth, worth building on. I, I think Tyler touched on it. I think it's around, well, generally, if you look at the asset class, it's actually performed really well over the last decade. And, you know, all investors always say that's through a period of time where we've had a pretty benign economic backdrop. But I think a lot of it boils down to around asset selection, the fact that you're sourcing, originating your own assets. So you're very focused on picking the assets in industries that you want exposure to. And I think that's very different to what you see in a in a public markets mm -hmm. allocation, where generally if you're in a public market, you're in and around an index, which is across all, all industries. I think when you look across direct lending portfolios, they all have a bent to the defensive industries that, that Tyler referred to. And I think the industry as a whole has benefited from that tilt. Yeah. You're generally exposed to less cyclical, less cyclical sectors in the space. Yeah. And Justin, from your perspective, uh, APAC, yeah, look, I think um, the sectors we focus on are no different to what we're doing globally. I think it's those defensive sectors. A lot of our companies, you know, in the healthcare space, right, or education or, you know, mature recurring revenue tech technology companies. So stuff that's very sticky, very stable, very high cash flow conversion. And I think ultimately what, what we, the, the, probably the bigger difference we do see in APAC versus the US or Europe is that the companies we're lending to are typically number one or number two in their, in, in their fields. And, you know, they've got dominant market share. We do call Australia sort of the land of, 
duopolies, um, and it's very hard for other people to get scale other competitor, uh, competing companies. And so that really protects us. And even a company that only has EBITDA of, say, 15 or 20 million will be a market leader in its niche. And that that is really important when it comes to, especially we've seen over the last year where there's been very high inflation, but these companies have been able to pass through price increases to the end consumer because of their market position. Do you think it's also fair to say that the the asset class is also, I guess, better capitalized than it was in the GFC? If you think of like the ownership structure, you know, there was there were a lot of banks in the space, and you think of the ownership structure today, it's much more institutional, particularly in North America, which I think is going to give the asset class a lot more stability as well. I think that's I think. A really sorry. No, I, I think that's a huge part of it. I, I think when you look at you know the the experience of the GFC and what we see today. GFC was was predominantly a liquidity crisis, right? There was no liquidity in the market. We do not have that situation today. You know, that's not to say we're not going to have economic headwinds and, and challenges that we're going to have to deal with, but I think it's going to be fundamentally different. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think your observation is an interesting one because I'm old. I've been around doing this for a while. So when we were doing transactions back before the GFC, and admittedly in Europe and APAC, that was a that was a banking market, a leverage finance market. In the US, there was definitely a, a developing direct lending market. But when you looked at structures back then, they were definitely you know, structured to perfection, if you like. You would have a first lane, a second lane, maybe a piece of mares, a whole co-pick note, and then a very thin piece of equity. Cash flows were very, very tight. Mm -hmm. And when things went slightly off course, then basically businesses or transactions would pop at that point. I think what you see now, in particularly in direct lending, you see significantly more well, simpler structures, either, you know, a piece of uni-tranche debt or a first and second lane piece of debt, but the big difference, I think, is just the amount of equity in transactions. Yeah. It was not uncommon back then to see 20, 25% equity sitting underneath you. Yeah. Now it's definitely, I mean, today we're seeing more like, you know, 55, 60% equity sitting underneath us. Now you can argue enterprise values are massively inflated compared to where they were, but I don't think enterprise values are going to go back for a performing business to where they, you know, down into the, the mid single digits for a, for a solidly performing business. So I think that equity cushion sitting behind us now is is significantly more than it used to be. And I think the other the other part to pick up on is the vast majority of the companies we back have a private equity sponsor involved, right? So I'd say it's probably over 90, 95% of yeah. the book. And that, you know, we really like private equity sponsors. Why? Because they bring a lot of, you know, the diligence going into the into the business. We're looking at a, you know, a business at the moment and they've got a full suite of almost or they ex-executives of this business, which they're looking to buy, which provides them a lot of insight of what, what it's really like. They really get under the hood. We do that. I think you, Tyler sort of alluded to that. We have access. We were really at the front end and we can dive into that. So they bring that discipline. They bring good corporate governance discipline, and then they have the pockets. So if companies do get into trouble and face speed humps, they, you know, they can put more money in if required or throw resource at it to try and sort out the things. So I think we, you know, it's a good asset class from that perspective where you've got a good captain of the ship, if you like, to try and, you know, push that through. So maybe um, kind of taking that, uh, that that backdrop and segueing to the overall health of, of the middle market. I mean, for those of, of uh, you know, our investor base that are dialing in, they'll know that we have a very uh, specific focus, to your point, Justin, on private equity-backed companies, focusing on the core middle market. You know, when you think of the, 
the rising rate dynamic, that's a double-edged sword, I think, for our asset class. Obviously, being floating rate in nature, it's great. We can deliver a higher return to our investors, but that's also uh, you know, a higher interest burden that, that these companies have to bear. How are they, generally speaking, across your regions, holding up? Uh, and maybe, Adam, turning to you first for, for your perspective from, from Europe and, and maybe just the bigger picture across the portfolio. Yeah, sure. I mean, Maybe to take a step back, I think it's it's worth just looking at the overall performance of businesses and how they held up over the last 18 months, 24 months, and then overlay that with, you know, how much cash have they got to pay interest today in a, in a, in a much higher base rate environment. I think, look, we've seen some common themes, I think, across the US portfolio, European and Asia pack businesses. I think you've seen over the last 18 months, you've definitely seen, initially, I think, you know, particularly when Ukraine situation occurred, you know, supply chain issues, particularly higher energy costs. I think we've seen energy costs abate over the last 12 months. But the biggest impact, I think, has just been inflation, particularly on wage inflation. We've probably seen higher wage inflation here in Europe than we have in the US. But we have seen businesses respond to that, generally through trying to push through price increases, which, you know, to be honest, has surprised me because you've seen that suggests demand has been quite robust over the last 18 months or so, and, and companies have continued to push price increases through to maintain maintain performance. So that's that's <clears throat> that's positive. But then when you overlay that with, you know, having to pay an extra 500 basis points of interest expense on top of what you were paying before. I know we're going to get to where do we think it's going to go, but I think you're definitely seeing cash flow getting tighter in businesses just as a consequence of that, even where companies have, have been performing okay. So I think when you look across the portfolio, it has surprised me how well things have, have held up given given just the increase in, in base rates and the economic backdrop that, that companies have experienced. Tyler, Justin, some perspective from your your regions. Yeah, I think. Look, I, I think um, as a firm, we've done a lot of analysis on the underlying stats in the portfolio, and I think that's thrown up some interesting uh, observations from from our side and the APAC thing. Of margins of EBITDA margins have held relatively constant. Um, interest cover, which is a key metric that we focus on going into deals as well as as we track through, has come down. It has got tight, and invariably it's going to right when interest rate goes up four hundred basis points. You're not going to get around that, but you know the, the interest cover for at least for you know the APAC book is still strong and still in a good place. Um, you know, and I think it, it probably comes back to again what we've said is which which industries have we picked up right? If you in the healthcare space, irrespective of what's happening there out there with economic uncertainty and you know slowdown and everything else. If you've got, if you're unwell, you have to go to hospital and you have to get treatment, right? You can't, it's not a, an election thing. It's not discretionary. It's something you're going to have to do. And so I think that, you know, if you build your portfolio accordingly, you should be able to withstand some of the shocks and your trade is a consistent sort of performance. You're not going to be up when the times are great, you know, but you're not going to be down when things are a bit worse. So, and, you know, and again, the companies are high cash flow conversion, low capex. And so I think we've been very selective and I think our portfolio seems to be holding up pretty well. Yeah. I mean, I think to, to put it a different way, it's really identifying assets that have a reason to exist in all parts of the cycle. And, and I think, you know, it kind of goes back to a common theme that, you know, we've touched on already and I'm sure we'll touch on again, but uh, it's around sector exposure, right? And and I think a lot of us across the, the bearing strategy and in our investment philosophy is carving out a lot of, you know, consumer-related businesses. 
that you know, may have some ebbs and flows in terms of just consumer demand. We're also carving out, you know, in North America, for instance, some of the heavily reimbursed healthcare, yeah. where you know we can protect ourselves against various kind of risks of disintermediation within that five to seven year contractual maturity, which which tends to be the standard in the market. I, I think there's also a, a necessary kind of humility that look in the mirror, we're not going to be immune, right? I think from a, a margin standpoint, we've been pretty fortunate thus far, be able to pass through price increases that Adam alluded to. But I think most you know, recessionary environments are going to be most acute to certain parts of the economy. <clears throat> I think the question is just what that contagion looks like and, and kind of the different parts of the economy that it spreads to. So far, we, we've been incredibly resilient and I think you know, positioned remarkably well. But I think it's it's a diligent approach to, to underwriting on the front end and then maintaining that underwrite and that oversight from my portfolio management standpoint. So maybe picking up the thread on sort of not being immune. So we've kind of done all of the stuff up front, but clearly there are going to be some, uh, you know, there are going to be challenges. What, what is your expectation around defaults, um, you know, across the broader market, but also within the bearings portfolio? And in this environment of higher rates, what are you seeing happen to, to capital structures? Are sponsors asking for, you know, more terms of pick? And, you know, what, what's kind of happening at that kind of capital structure level as well? Adam? Yeah, there's a couple of things in that question. I mean, in, in terms of where do we think the portfolio is going to go, I, I think things have held up well. But I, I do think, you know, as Tyler picked up on, I think I keep expecting to see the quarterly numbers deteriorate from the portfolio and, the, and they really haven't yet. I think what we're going to see first really is the impact of interest rate on borrowers before we really see a decline in EBITDA. If we look across the entire book and I, and I think it's true, not just in APAC, but in the US and Europe, EBITDA margins across, the, across our entire book have held up incredibly well. So that says performance is okay, but cash flow generation is the is issue. So a, a big chunk of the portfolio has interest rate hedging in place. That will run off sometime next year. So we will start to see cash flow getting getting tighter on the book. It just can't you can't help it. I think what we've tried to do is position ourselves at the conservative end of the spectrum for this asset class. There is no way getting away from the fact that this is a sub investment grade asset class. But I think we are at the conservative end of that that risk spectrum for the want of a better way of describing it. So the capital structures we have in place are not particularly aggressive. And I think what you will see is companies with aggressive capital structures basically will have a broken balance sheet and they're going to run out of cash. I think that's going to happen over the course of the next 12 months. So you're going to start to see you know, different managers with different, different approaches to the asset class have different performance. In terms of structures that we see today, you know, you just can't support the level of debt um, that once went into these transactions. So you're seeing significantly less leverage. Pricing has widened out and uh, we can talk about that later, but I think we're getting some pretty <clears throat> decent risk-adjusted returns in the asset class with very limited reduction in enterprise values to date. So just more equity going in, less debt, definitely a transfer of, of return from equity to debt. So maybe kind of delving into the competitive environment then a little bit more, you know, we, we sort of picked up on that thread of what's pricing looking like. You've given the, the sort of the, the bird's eye view. Tyler, Justin, does that kind of echo in, in your regions? What are you what are you seeing in North America and, and APAC as well? Yeah, look, I mean, APAC's quite interesting because I think, you know, it's really been quite far behind actually in t on, on the institutional lending side versus Europe and the US, right? We, we're probably still 
I would say, for, you know, five years behind in terms of volume. So to give you an idea, you know, at the moment, you know, probably less than or 10% out of all financing is probably from institutional players versus the US. I think it's the other way around. It's more like 85, 90% is from institutional players and 10% is from the banks. So the banks have played a really important role up until now, but we've had a bunch of um, global credit funds coming into the market. And what that's done is it's provided, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. One, it's provided a lot more competition. So trying to do deals is become harder because you've got a lot of capital chasing fewer deals. But on the other hand, you've now been able to present to sponsors a real viable solution to say, if you want to look at a uni tranche or an institutional product, you can do it because we can get volume. So we've had a couple of deals this year that have been sort of a billion dollars plus in uni tranche lending, which, which is very unusual. It's a first for that market where you can actually fill that gap. But what is, what's been fascinating versus the US is that the guys coming in to date, and let's see how that changes have been pretty disciplined. So they've held their pricing. They, they're all trying to chase deals, but people seem to be holding the pricing. The terms seem to be still pretty good. I think in the US, you know, for some of these bigger companies, which we're, we're putting uni tranche financing into, they would be a cover-light uni in the States. In APAC, it's almost this unspoken thing of, we're not gonna do that. Let's actually carry on and, and maintain the covenant as long as we can. And so, you know, we have seen the benefit of the pricing going up with the terms remaining pretty good at the moment. You know, does desperation creep in at some stage when the guys have been down there two or three years and haven't built out a portfolio because it's hard to do that? Maybe, but at the moment it feels like it's it's a good place for us. Yeah, I think in, in North America, you know, deal flow still remains relatively subdued. You know, I think it, it's hard to read too much into, you know, the, the overall trends right now just because the activity hasn't been there. Um, I think the questions really revolved around what's financeable in the market. Um, so I think the quality of assets has remained relatively high. Um, and, and because of that, you've seen, you know, as Adam alluded to, EV multiples remain relatively insulated from the broader dislocation in, in markets. But I, I think in terms of the private credit side and, and addressing the limited supply, I think more and more tier one sponsors with tier one type assets are consolidating around fewer, larger, more stable managers. Yeah, I think that's a common theme across the market in North America, Europe, and, and APAC. But I think especially in North America, you know, there are there is no shortage in competition. But I think the the reality is, you know, especially through COVID and a lot of the turmoil in the market since then, most top tier private equity firms are focusing their deal flow and focusing their lender relationships around entities that they view as a through the cycle entity. Mm -hmm. um, so they need somebody that can support their strategy, support their growth for that business. And those players are fewer and far between. I think, I think you're right. I mean, that's a very important part, right? Is the sponsors are going out and saying, okay, if I want to try and put together you know, a few lenders for this deal, I want to keep them as, as few as possible. So who can do the bigger tickets as well as that speed and certainty and reliability, right? So that hold size is is key and, and we are seeing that, you know, all over. I think they only want to either deal with one party or maximum sort of two or three. And, you know, some of the smaller guys, at least in, in APAC, that have started up and can not provide as much of the capital structure on missing out on deals and actually having to do, we've turned down a number of deals this, this last couple of weeks, which these smaller guys are having to do because they don't have another chance. They can't get into the, the better quality assets, the tier one assets mm -hmm. and the tier one sponsor. So I guess that that's really a segue into, you know, manager performance and dispersion, right? Uh, um, I, you know, you would have 
we've seen that dynamic recently, but you know, we've been seeing that over the last few years as well as people have been building their portfolios and, and investing. So maybe just Tyler, from, from your perspective, are you starting to see whispers of more dispersion across managers as well in the US market? Or is it is it just too early to to say at the moment? You know, it's it's tough analysis, honestly. It's still such an opaque asset class. You know, I think in North America, one thing we do have in terms of transparency is the BDC market. That being said, you know, valuation methodologies, you know, reporting of underperforming assets, it, it's all manager specific. And, and there is just a very wide range in terms of transparency from manager to manager. That being said, absolutely starting to get the sense of, of underperformance um, starting to shake out. Mm-hmm. I think with this asset class and given the fact that you, know, you can continue to amend and extend and kind of kick the can down the road, so to speak, I think you are starting to see some of the pain that was probably masked from 2020 and 2021 that has really kind of taken it on the chin, if you will, in terms of rising rates and, and broader you know, recessionary backdrop. Yeah, I think the biggest trend that that I would look to is a lot of the cash interest to to pick conversion. I think in doing that, you're stemming some of the cash needs uh, of the business. However, you're aligning your success with equity, yeah. um, and and you're kind of taking your current income product and, and aligning with an equity takeout, which is going to continue to draw out performance. And you know, candidly, I think will be probably the biggest you know separator of of performance between kind of top tier and disciplined managers with kind of those that were maybe less disciplined in the good times. And I guess, Adam, maybe just picking up on that, uh, you know, the outlook for Europe, given that portfolios are more discreet uh, as well across managers, what do you expect there? And, and generally speaking, what are the implications of, of, of all of this for the asset class? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to compare and contrast the European landscape with with North America, I think the BDCs do, do give more transparency to to manage performance in the US. I think it is more opaque in Europe, and I think to Tyler's point, it takes a long time for issues to to flow out. So I think managers in Europe have a range of valuation policies, and sometimes those valuation policies result in very little movement in 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 NAV until there is a major, major problem. So I think a lot of people are trying to hold the tide back. And I think as cash flow becomes tighter and businesses start to underperform, you will start to see quite a divergence in performance. And that's down to your point around managers in Europe having, because it is a bit of a sole lender market, generally is, and particularly in the space we're in, you will see perform uh, manage performance very greatly because of that. But it's really what did you do two or three years ago will determine what your performance is over the next 24 months because it just takes so long for it to come through. And I think one of the key things today in Europe around that sole lender market is just access to quality deal flow. So, you know, as, as Tyler said, there's, there's fewer managers doing more transactions, raising more capital. If you're not in the flow, if you're not one of the two or three direct lenders that a private equity firm wants to go to, you are basically going to get adverse selection. Um, and I think adverse selection is going to become a massive, massive issue in direct lending. You want to invest with someone who can give you access to high quality flow. I think that's the most important thing when an LP is looking at a manager today is, are you seeing the high quality flow? Do you have an opportunity to invest in quality businesses or are you getting everything that everyone else says no to? So I've got a tough question for you now. Mm. How, can an, how can an LP actually diligence that? I think it's really, really hard. And, and I think 
everyone everyone in this asset class sounds very very similar like everyone says we invest in you know what we've been talking about assets that perform through a cycle you know we avoid cyclical businesses and i think that message has narrowed over the last couple of years as people used to have a broader mandate and discover that some stuff didn't work. So I think the first thing is, how is their investment philosophy changed over time? Mm -hmm. Are they doing today what they've done in the past and how does that how has that changed? Um, do they actually follow through and say, say they do what they will do? Most people say one thing and do another. And then you can see big variations in portfolio vis-a-vis -vis the mm -hmm. compared to what the what they actually have in their portfolio. And I think just looking at some raw things like you know, debt to EBDA numbers, what's the actual interest cover coming out of it? The other really objective thing you can look at is just levels of diversification in a portfolio. Mm. It's pretty hard for people to, to make up the numbers yeah. in a portfolio, but when they're looking at, you know, adjusted EBDA and leverage numbers, there's a lot of managing of that. But it's more the soft stuff. You've got to dig in and ask, ask detailed questions around, you know, what are the type of businesses? Why do you like the business? And then go and due diligence that with private equity firms and see what they say about yeah. particular direct lenders. One thing that kind of jumped out to me is uh, there are probably, what, 75 direct lenders in the market today, if not more. But I think you could really group them in, in two different categories. One is being kind of an alternatives manager. And, and I think those individuals have probably strayed because they look at a transaction and they want to you know, structure around every risk and they want to squeeze every last basis point of return out of it. And then I think there are managers that look in the mirror and acknowledge that we're first lien senior lenders. It's not the most exotic thing in the world, but it's a view of principal preservation is how you return a fund, not stretching yep. to, to mm -hmm. win a deal and squeeze everything out of it. And I think if you look back over the past couple of years, that bifurcation is really what's going to drive manager performance. And, and to Adam's point, you're going to see that in leverage. You're going to see that in interest coverage. Mm -hmm. You're going to see that in types of deals done. You know, the, the change in investment philosophy, the change in position in the market, going from traditional to upper or getting squeezed back down to lower. <clears throat> um, yeah. So I, I think there are a lot of data points, but I think, you know, to my point earlier, you know, looking at cash to pick conversion, it's going to tell you a lot. Um, maybe switching to, to kind of your forward-looking perspectives. What are your bull and bear cases for the asset class over the next 12 months? What, what's the, the glass half full view? I'm going to throw that one over to you, Adam. Uh, and what's the glass half empty? You're starting with me on half full. Yeah. That's surprising. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of performance is going to come down to liquidity in the, in the short term. And that means uh, interest rate, is the interest rate burden going to be maintained as in a base rate is going to remain elevated for a longer period of time? Look, the more bull ca the bullish case is that we, we've peaked in interest rates, it starts to come off, there's more free cash flow, uncertainty starts to fade, M&A activity comes back. And then, you know, the industry starts to, to starts to deploy more money again. Equity multiples remain okay as a consequence of that fall off in interest case. That's the the bullish case. I'm predicting that that's probably. <laughs> I think I think interest rates are going to stay higher for longer. I think you're going to see liquidity. I think you're going to see picking of staff. I think you're going to see businesses with you know broken balance sheets, which is going to represent an opportunity for us on the credit side. And I think you're going to see private equity firms. A dispersion, a big dispersion in private equity performance, mm -hmm. and I, I think in general you're going to see a uh, a transfer of return from equity to debt, which hasn't happened for over a decade. Mm -hmm. So I, I gave you both. You gave me both. Anyone else want to add? 
their views? Pull and bear case? Oh, look, I, I think it's not going to be that, that dissimilar. I think one of the interesting things, which is still the play out, I think, in APAC is more what's happening in China, because mm -hmm. that is actually such a big economy yeah. and has a, a really large impact you know, both locally on, on Australia, but also the rest of the world, right? And I think there's a lot of pain going on in that. There's you know, The government seems to be throwing more stimulus at it now and trying to get people to carry on lending and opening that up. But I think that that, that to me will decide, uh, at least in our area, what happens on the bull or the bear yeah. case, because that, that could have big ramifications for, for everybody, depending on which way that goes. And Tyler, what is your... Yeah, honestly, not too dissimilar. I mean, I, I think I look at the asset class, bull and bear is, is really being focused on deal flow. Um, you know, I think performance is going to be, you know, shaken out manager by manager. And, and I think, you know, for better or worse, those beds are already made. But I think in terms of deal flow, bull case, everything that Adam said, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's a there could certainly be a thawing in the market and private equity has pent up demand and pent up desire to, to achieve liquidity. I think a, a bear case is it remains subdued. You know, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty in terms of valuations. You know, we, we've talked about the tier one assets where valuations haven't moved a lot. Everything's not a tier one asset, right? And, and I think there's gonna be a lot of hesitancy to, to go out and monetize a tier two, three, four, however low those numbers go. Mm. And, and I think that could continue to maintain a, a little bit of a, a slowdown in the M&A markets. So with that kind of framing, if you were to provide guidance to, to investors on how to navigate the outlook, you know, what would be your, what would your recommendations be? How should they be thinking about their allocations for, for 2024? Tyler, let's go back to you. Yeah. So, you know, I think from a macro perspective, the asset class continues to grow and, and for a lot of good reason. Um, you know, I think, you know, there, there will continue to be a, a growing opportunity set as private credit effectively plays out the same playbook as private equity since the 80s. That cannibalization trade of syndicated markets will continue. I think the market opportunity will grow, the attractiveness, the economics, obviously in a base rate environment that we're operating in today, incredibly attractive on a risk-adjusted basis. You know, I think in terms of navigating that, I think scale matters. I think liquidity matters. I, I think looking at a private credit allocation, similar light as, as choosing a bank, we're, we're banks in, in that regard. And, and you want somebody that's gonna be there in all parts of the cycle and able to lean into that opportunity. So you know, consistent with comments I made earlier, you're gonna see LPs, you're gonna see deal flow from sponsors, you're gonna see talent consolidate around mm. fewer and larger. Mm. So I, I think you have to go into it eyes wide open and you know, really focus on manager selection. But ultimately, that is my prediction in, in terms of how that plays out. I think, I think the important thing for the LPs to really do is work out, I think Adam touched on it earlier, which part of the risk spectrum they want to be on. Right? Are they in the conservative, defensive, capital preservation, but earning a return here? Or do they want to go on the riskier side and play the riskier side and get the alpha and, mm. and are prepared to take, you know, that chance to get the alpha. So, and then once, you, once you've worked that out, I think you can then sort of try, try to group managers into those buckets of people who offer, you know, that sort of stuff, right? But I, I, that's very important because I think if, if you don't really know what you're trying to achieve, as, as we say, but private debt um, has become very, very popular as a, as a term, at least in APAC, right? Everyone's talking about it, everyone wants to invest in it. There, it's always been the 60-40 rule. That's changing now. I think people are realizing that the private asset class is not 
not a bad asset class to invest in. It actually has quite a few advantages. But then when you get into it, you've got to peel the onion back and actually work out which which part you actually want to sit in before you before you deploy. Yeah, I mean, it's still a relatively new asset class for a lot of institutional investors, and I mean LPs. Yeah. And I think, by and large, the experience that people have had with the asset class over the last sort of five to 10 years has been positive. So it's gone from being more of a niche allocation to a permanent allocation within institutional investors' portfolios. So that means there's going to be more capital flowing into the asset class looking for a home. And to Tyler's point, you know, that means there's a, a structural shift in you know in grow in the asset class growing, it's definitely going to start to eat into public markets, and but you are going to see a bifurcation of manager performance. So you're going to see those that growing faster than the industry, and I think there's going to be you're already seeing yeah. uh, fewer managers <clears throat> using larger funds and doing more of the deal flow. I think that trend will continue. Mm-hmm. So what's going to become more important over the next you know cycle is manager selection and going with people that you see high quality flow, that do have scale, to Tyler's points, incumbency is credibly important. A lot of your deal flow comes from your existing Mm -hmm. book today. Um, So all those things mean, in in my view, you've got to pick who you want to be with. You can't just go and say, oh, here's 10 managers in Europe, we'll give them all a a ticket, they'll all do similarly. That's not going to be the case anymore. Mm -hmm. You will see people blow up and lose money in the asset class. So... You might have already given your bold prediction for 2024, but uh, lightning round, one bold prediction from, from each of you for, for the next year. I think you'll see M&A activity come back by sort of beginning of Q2 because, not, not my bull or bear prediction, just because private equity firms are going to be under a lot of pressure to return capital uh, to their investor base. So those investors come into, can come into a new vintage for that mm-hmm. private equity firm. And as a, consequence, as a consequence of that, you're just going to see that valuation gap a road between yeah. buyers and sellers yeah. and people are just going to have to move stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what I think will happen in the first sort of three to five months of next year. Justin? Um, I'll go lighthearted and then make it serious. So I think um, <laughs> Novak Djokovic is going to win two Grand Slams oh next year. That's bold pretty bold, I know, but uh, they're given his age. <laughs> so no, 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 not four. No, no, I'm, I'm conservative. So. <laughs> um, and then, but but on a on a like like you know theme along those lines, I think inflation's going to stay higher for longer. It's going to be tougher, like Djokovic mm. is at hanging in there and you know really annoying people and trying to win stuff. So I, th- I think you know the the rates are not. I think everyone was hoping it was going to be a quick up and down in the rate cycle. I think we've seen that it's still got a way to play out. So. Never heard a comparison of uh, Djokovic and inflation before. That's that's a, that's a good one. And Tyler, what about you? Uh, I'm going to say uh, I think we'll start hearing whispers of regulatory oversight to private credit. Uh, although I would say I, I think that's going to focus on the retail investor. I think there's been a tremendous amount of growth out of that um, with mixed experience. Uh, and I think it's probably, you know, prime for uh, a little bit of oversight there. Well, thank you guys uh, for that that uh, session. It's been really great to spend uh, the time with you going through uh, your views and perspectives from across the, the region. Uh, hopefully to everyone that's that's dialed in, uh, that's helped to bring into focus some of the themes that, that we felt were uncertain uh, and blurred at, at, the start of, at the start of this conversation. Uh, as ever, please reach out to your bearings representative if you want to follow up and continue the conversation with any of our speakers here today. Uh, thank you all for, for di- dialing in and, uh, and also would encourage you to subscribe to, to the streaming Income podcast uh, and check out the Bearings website uh, for, for more information on any of the themes that you've heard here today. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate debt and equity, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.